Do you Joanne, wanna... I, have a, I have a question for Joanne. Okay. Is your very nature that of the devil? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's devil-esque. <laughs> devil adjacent. Greetings, Avery Inferiors, and welcome to Vampire Insider, the unofficial podcast of the Anne Rice Immortal Universe. Each week, co-hosts Christina LaRusso, Joanne Palumbo, and myself, Mark Snedeker, recap and analyze episodes, delve into Anne Rice's library, and have in-depth discussions of other works about the supernatural. Joining us today is at Inky Blot Posts, a longtime Anne Rice fan and member of the very active Twitter fandom community. Inky Blot, also known as Joe, whose background is in literature, has had a profound connection with Rice's source material from a young age. She and a friend ran an active Facebook forum dedicated to discussion of the Vampire Chronicles, and she even communicated directly with Anne prior to her death about what a Lestat and Louis wedding might be like. Joe is a show super fan who has met several of the actors, including Asad Zaman and Sam Reed in Paris and Joseph Potter, who will be playing Nikki in season two. We are so grateful that she agreed to join us on today's episode in which we are going to be discussing authorial intent and the reading and viewing experience. So I'd like to welcome my fellow podcasters, Christina LaRusso, Joanne Palumbo, and of course, our special guest, Inky Blot Posts. This is a multi-layered authorial intent, right? Because with a TV series, they do have an intention. They want to tell you. They've got a they've got a narrative that they want to get through. Toxic relationship <laughs> um, and memory is a monster, right? So far, at least. So far is what is what we we get, and I'm sure that that will uh, be an ongoing thing. But those weren't necessarily Anne's intention. Right. Um, one of the kind of running jokes on this podcast is that she uses the word preternatural yes. quite a bit, right? She over loved that over word. and over. But for me, one of the big themes or takeaways from interview with the vampire, the first novel, is the concept of nature. Correct me if I'm wrong, but for me, Joe, nature really just kind of pervades the entirety of the Vampire Chronicles. It's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, I agree. Yes, it does. And the thought that came to my mind immediately was the idea of the Savage Garden, which is, for me, I, I mean, again, <laughs> open to interpretation, but I've always interpreted it as finding, in kind of a Hobbes way, the beauty in the darkness, the savagery of nature. and accepting that the world is savage, nasty Brutus in short, as Hobbes said, but also there is beauty and nothing is either one thing or the other. And all we can do is live in it and, in, and try and enjoy it the best we can. You can look at it as human nature and the experience of humans existing in this natural world, right? But also, and what that means and how savage it is and life is Brutus in short and all of the rest, but also within the human being, within the individual, there is savagery yeah. and there is also beauty. And I think that is such a great way because we were just talking about Lestat. Yeah. And that, that links back. Yeah. Who he is as a, as a character. But I agree with you, Christina. And I think that it's not just Lestat with whom that dichotomy exists. There's also 
that uh, duality within all of them. All of them. And I think it's something that Louis is especially going to be grappling with in season two. That element to his character that he's fought so hard to ignore. Famously in the book, and we we saw it in the movie also, and and in the in the series, it's it's in your nature, Louis. This is your nature, right? And I think that we have to look at all of the characters and what their nature is, and that for me is the biggest kind of intent that I can find with Anne's work. It's interesting, isn't it? Really, very. Um, existential. I used the word before, but it really is that, and it is is digging into who they are and how they relate with one another. And I, I know in some vampire universes this is the case, and I kind of apply it to all of them. Is that when you turn, you kind of take more prominent characteristics and nature, if you will, into your vampirism, and it intensifies it. I don't know. Do you think your your entire personality and who you are changes when you become a vampire? I mean, that's a pretty interesting question, really. So Louis didn't just discover, you know, his ennui or navel gazing or when he was a vampire, right? He was kind of that way beforehand. But of course, the vampirism really ramped shit up for him. And Lestat was a, a hunter, prolific wolf killer, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, and kind of a I do what I want. Type of guy. Was it ever explored in this universe that, you know, some of your human nature, is that something that was ever talked about? I think that's part of what makes this show and the books so compelling is the fact that they are monsters. And yet we so easily and readily forget they are because they're so goddamn human. Yeah. Isn't that ultimately the genius of Rice? Whatever you want to say about her, her writing, one thing she did that really had not been done before was take legitimate monsters. I mean, they're still monsters, but also make them more complex and make them more, maybe not human, well, somewhat human, but people. Well, yes. While we're talking about perspectives, first time that the story was told by the vampire's point of view, she changed the canon, really. I mean, she changed the course of gothic horror in terms of vampires. I'm a true believer that, you know, all the things that came afterward, the vampire as the tortured hero, the one who grapples with all of these concepts, because I suppose they have still vestiges of who they were before. We've talked about this multiple times. And in fact, in the discussion, the initial discussion that we had about the book, we said that she is the first one who stops us as the reader learning how to solve the problem of the vampire because the vampire coming into town is a problem. Uh, it's the same year that Stephen King published Salem's Lot. Right. She published Interview with the Vampire. Salem's Lot is all about how do we solve this problem because now we've it's got like, vampires. Yeah, it's an infestation, <laughs> not a visit. Um, and then her thing was like, who cares about what the humans around think? You don't ever really worry or, or learn what the humans are, are, how they're experiencing the fact that vampires are living on Rue Royale. Yeah. You know, there's you do that. You do get that a little bit in the show. And I guess you do get it in the book where you get the slaves reactions. But Might have been a pretty good early 80s sitcom, though. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't really – it's really not the focus of how to solve the problem of the vampire. You, you, it's really how hard is it to be a vampire? It, what does it mean to be a vampire? What is that vampiric nature and what does it mean? Circling back to authorial intent, though, if nature, as I suggest, is a is – a, Theme. topic, a theme that she, that is a part of her intent to explore 
in the book, what does nature mean? You're a blood drinker. You have uh, practical immortality. You are stronger than you were, mm -hmm. stronger than anyone around you except other vampires. Mm -hmm. um, you have limitations, like you can't go out in the daylight unless you have a big gallon of milk with you. Mm -hmm. You need to sleep during the day, etc. So that is the, that's the nature that you're given. You can't do anything about that, really. So that's that's what you think. I think so. Rice's yeah. intent on nature is for in the vampire chronicles, right? And then so when she when he says. It's your nature, Louis. Right. And that's Lestat. Lestat is the voice of kind of the naturalistic fallacy, right? This is how you were born. This is, I mean, this is how you were changed. This is who you are now. Embrace it. Forget about, you know, whatever your moral qualms were. Just be vampire. Embrace it. Embrace it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joanne, same question to you. What do you think Rice's intent when, if we say, if, talking about nature, when she talks about nature, when what does she mean by nature? Very simple. They're cold-blooded killers. I think they have to be killers, but especially with Louis, he, he can't do it cold-bloodedly. And that's the key tension. But that's why Lestat said to him, it's your nature now, Louis. Because mm. Lestat, at the end of the day, I believe, is a cold-blooded killer. Mm. Yes, there's other layers to him, of course, but... At, when you strip everything back, he has to kill. He doesn't have to kill. He chooses to kill to survive. He could easily just drink and not kill. But he plays with his victims. He's sadistic. I love him. To me, that's that's what that moment meant. Um, and that's what I think the nature is of a vampire is their killers. Okay, so Joe, what, same question to you. What When she uses the word nature, what do you think her intent is? of nature is? How did you read nature? I think for Louis, one of the key things he struggles with is having two natures at odds within himself, the vampiric nature and then the human nature that he still maintains. If I'm saying Anne has an intent and she's going into it and she wants us to take something away from nature, I agree with you. I think that it is to do with grappling with your humanity and then also something darker, like a darker force that's in it. So this, there's a tension between good and moral and a part of society and working within, you know, so that part of, of a nature, like a good side. Um, and then there's maybe an antisocial or an outsider nature that's at odds with that. And that, to me, is the vampire, right? That, you know, she's writing about vampires, and it is a vampire story. So you can approach it and perceive this as it's a great vampire story. It's a great gothic story. But then you can, I think, and I think a lot of uh, literary critics over the years have done, looked at her work and said, this, ha this has some messaging in here that's important that talks about the outsider. And I think that she herself has mentioned that vampirism is a good way to, um, well, she says the perfect metaphor for the outsider who is in the midst of everything yet completely cut off. Whether or not that was her intent going in, whether she sat down in her grief to revise this short story and say, I'm going to write about the nature of vampires and, um, or the nature of humanity and the darkness that can also exist at the same time that there is a light and in, in an individual, or if that upon 
the dis- with the distance of time and writing more of the chronicles that she was able to say, yeah, you know, and seeing also seeing how her work was received and what people took away from it. Because l- people are very vocal about her work and what it means to them. Do you think that would have influenced her, though? Didn't every one of her actions after she published this say, I care about the way people see my books? Yeah. I think so. Well, and certainly around the blood canticle time, which is we, we kind of joked about it before, but is true. Um, she went to Amazon, I think it was on Amazon reviews and people were giving it, uh, giving some bad reviews. And she went and said, you're not reading this correctly. If you yeah. read this correctly, you'd have a different experience from it. But Joe, let me ask you this, because this is one of the things that, that you and I have talked about um, offline about this is, is did Anne write in service at some point during the tenure of her writing career, did she start writing the chronicles in service to her fans? My my feeling is that she loved interacting with the fans and she really loved what people thought and what they had to say and the you know, things like that. But I I don't know, my feeling is that perhaps the, the characters were too strong within her own mind. I feel like, you know, she, um, I think she had a very clear image of who her characters were. And I, I don't think actually fans could influence that. Maybe she got ideas from speaking about characters and maybe those ideas came into fruition in her mind as she was answering fans questions. Case in point, <laughs> the marriage uh, of Lestat and Louis. But I don't know. I, I just think given her history and how, very adamant she's always been about her canon and her characters and I I think more she felt that they had the characters have control over her more than the fans I think she famously wrote on Facebook once about Louis and just saying like I tried to let him go or she regretted not being able to like keep him going as strongly through the series but then by the last three books, she was just like, these two characters just had to be together. And, you know, it was almost like, who am I to stop them? It was almost like she was led by the characters rather than the fans. So, yeah, I find it very interesting, um, her motivations. I think she would probably say she wasn't influenced by the fans. Yeah, I think the the correct, the correct, according to Mark, uh, way for an author to write is is to let the characters leave the story. A good author will tell you, you know, I had a basic idea and I started the stories and the story or whatever it was. And the character led me through the story, right? Once that you, you have to say, what would this character do here? And, and they will grow as almost a, you know, an abstract, they're an abstract person to you. And if you are writing, you know, if you're trying to force an ending, for example, then you get game of Thrones season eight. Right. <laughs> or whatever, you know, you get, you just yeah. don't get great art and it won't feel organic. It feels forced and, and, and trite. I definitely think she cared about how people read her work, obviously, or the way she wouldn't have gone on the war against fanfic there uh, early in her career, which she ultimately kind of, you know, embraced that community. My opinion of that actually is that she was never against fanfic for economical reasons or copyright reasons or anything like that. I I truly feel like she felt such 
almost maybe too close a kinship with these characters. Like they, I think she truly felt that they were her. They were parts of her. And so other people taking them and making them say things and do things almost maybe felt like a violation to her. Um, I think there was perhaps an element of that. And yes, you know, in the last sort of 10, 15 years, she did chill out a lot, which was lovely. Um, but I, I honestly don't think that her dislike of fan fiction was anything other than a personal emotional response. <laughs> I have the same view of it. And in fact, I don't blame her. I wouldn't know how if I was an author to a published author, how I would deal with people taking my characters and making them do and say things, right? Because those are, it, it could it could be very personal. I would imagine that it is very personal. Uh, I think that some people are better at it than others. Some authors are better at it than others. Like S Stephen King seems to be fine with people adapting his sure. work however and they want to do it. He says they'll either do a shitty job or a good job, but my book is still there. And and the book is still there. And mm -hmm. I think that that's something that, you know, a lot of times we have to remember. I wasn't very good at remembering that when the movie came out. And I'm not a fan of the movie uh, because I just, I, I Tom Cruise for me was just not the right Let's start. I respect others who, who enjoyed it, but it wasn't for me. And I returned to the book. That was not something that I would rewatch. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. Now I'll tell you a different example where I love the, one of the adaptations of it. And I returned to it frequently. In fact, this weekend, I Queen just had Queen of the Damned. It. No, <laughs> no, it was, it's Pride and Prejudice. And yeah. I like the Colin Firth version, right? So I, I returned to that version of the, the adaptation again and again and again. And I, the book doesn't even have to be there at this point. I can just enjoy that. So I completely understand and agree with what, what your, your point is, Mark, about the book still being there. Um, Okay, do we feel like we've talked through this yeah. enough? You're the boss. Do Let's what you see. want. I have a question for you, Jen. If we could ask Anne Rice right now what she meant by that, and her answer was as simplistic as mine. I just meant that he's a killer. Would that disappoint you in any way? Or how would you feel about that? No, I don't think it would because... It's interesting. Um, I agree with Mark in that a text's power lies as much within what people take away from it as what an author put into it. And I think most authors understand that. And I do think Anne understood that as well, especially towards the end. So then at, at the end of the day, authorial intent just doesn't matter. That's what I think, right? Based on that answer. So it wouldn't affect your view of it. It's an interesting one, because in my opinion, I mean, I know we're circling back to authorial intent, but I think for me, authorial intent is inextricable from the book, because it was authorial intent that created the book. <laughs> the intent was to write a book, and the intent was to write the words that were written. So authorial intent is in every single word we read. I don't think we can ignore it any more than we can not look at the book when we're reading it. What we're getting to be beautifully here in a very organic way, and I was going to cut this all out, but now I'm going to keep it all in, <laughs> um, is the death of the author. Jo Joanne, you're really essentially describing what that means. It's exactly what Daniel says in response to Louis's concern over how much of Claudia's story will be portrayed in the book that they're collaborating on. And he says, 
you know, once the story is published, Daniel says, it, it belongs to the people who will be reading it. Now, I'm not quoting him directly, but really that's what he's talking about. I, you have no control over it. Once you put it out there, it is now belonging to the people who are perceiving it. Going back to the idea of perception. This entire interview, uh, in a in a very real way and in a way that is different from the book on the show, is very much this a, a power struggle because the interview is a much more prominent thing. Daniel is a bigger character. He's not just a device. He's actually, he's a, he's a meaningful character in, in this version of it. And crucially, Daniel in this version is himself an author. I've done an analysis of his bookshelf and the names of his books that he's written. They're very interesting. Even some of them have blurbs on the back that are on his official web author website. Yes, there is an official Daniel Malloy author website and but you know you're right. They're they're literally they're not just talking vampire to boy anymore. They're talking Absolutely. author to author. That is so significant. Um, and and so Daniel does say this to him. He says, "Once it's out there, that's that's it." And Daniel is an author. He understands how this is going to work. But Armand, Louis, they are trying very desperately to control that space and and the story as it's being told. Armand. I mean, look at it. Armand has books and resources up on a on a bookshelf that Daniel can't reach. Daniel can't just go and peruse those those documents up there. And there's important documents up there that would have told Daniel. Wouldn't it be hilarious if in season two, he they just revealed that there's like just a button that you push to lower? <laughs> <laughs> right. I reject the fact that Louis can't reach them because we know that Louis has hops. He can yeah. jump. Yeah. Or just get that big strapping Eastern European guy to lift you up to the, uh, that you were feeding on <laughs> earlier, lift you up to the shelves. But all right. So Daniel is saying this and that is exactly what Joanne, you were talking about. Everybody ultimately is going to approach a text and have their own response to the text. And that's kind of why I wanted to ask you about, I asked each of you, what did you think nature meant? But now with the book uh, being adapted into this series, that opens up a lot of different and interesting questions. So could we talk a little bit about how people who are adapting, so the, the writers of the show, are adapting Anne's work and how does... How, you know, how do they pay service to her authorial intent, but also their own? Because they have their own intentions. I remember when the f- show first came out, there was a lot of talk about would Anne have, have approved of this, right? Is Still this what, is. Yeah, I know. And it, and it's like, you know, is, is this what she meant? And we didn't really get an answer to that question because she signed on to the show, obviously, as a as a producer and a consultant or whatever she was. But she died, you know, before the show was completed. So there's that mystery. To me, I don't care. I mean, it's interesting trivia, but either the show is good or the show is bad. And obviously, I'm not a book purist in that sense because, A, it's impossible to do a chapter-by-chapter recreation of a book without having a terrible TV show. Also, it's not interesting, right? We have the book already. We don't need to just, people just want to say, okay, well, I just want to see them act out the book. And there are people who like that, in which, you know, that's fine, I guess, but that's not how I see things in a proper universe. You are going to get departures from Anne's intention because you have another artist in the mix, right? Roland Jones has his own 
perspective, and he has to, otherwise the show will be terrible. So the to me, the main question is, and of course we're going to refer back to the books as touchstones because that's really, you know, that's the inspiration for it. But the, the question is, is the show good? Is it a well done show? And is it self-contained? Because I do kind of have a problem with adaptations that rely on you having read the book to make any sense out of it. Like the David Lynch's Dune, right? Mm. If you watch that movie without having read the uh, 10,000 pages that Frank Herbert wrote about it, you're lost. Yeah, that was me. Yeah, that's where that movie fell down, right? Now, I read the book, so I thought it was awesome. But I do recognize that that's not how uh, – of course I read the book, so please. He, of course. <laughs> but no, the reason he thought it was so awesome is was because, because of Sting. Sting. Yeah, of course. Sting was amazing in that. <laughs> um, but you know, if you have to have read the books to make sense of the show – the show's probably not that great, right? It didn't do a complete job. So I think it's interesting for us to have rich discussions about the books and what Anne would have liked and wouldn't have liked. It's interesting, but ultimately it doesn't matter to the show itself. The show itself has to stand on its own. It's interesting because my initial reaction when I heard the show was coming out was, of course, one of excitement, trepidation, hoping, like you said, Mark, that they wouldn't make it a bad show. Um, but I was also just terribly excited that there was a potential for it to bring a whole new generation of uh, young people to Anne's work, to to introduce people to to, to keep her voice alive um, through the medium of a show. And I'm not saying that in the terms of just uh, adapting the books directly word for word, which I, I agree is a completely terrible idea. But I do think that her voice is still present in the show. And I mean that in terms of the atmosphere, the questions that it asks, the characters that endure. I think one of the most poignant moments for me was in one of the behind the scenes uh, interviews, Roland Jones was talking about the moment when Anne had been sick for many months, I think with a series of strokes, but when they found that she, they got news that she died. There was a profound sadness, of course, on set, but also he said a huge feeling of responsibility because he was like, oh, now now it really is up to us to carry on this legacy. All we can hope to do, he said, is to show Anne Rice and show Anne Rice's world to new people. And he, I think he said something along the lines of keeping her work alive in that way of bringing new people back to the books through the show and you know having it as this wonderful sort of circle and I, I do I do feel that one of the things for me that has been the most heartwarming and powerful about the show runners and their approach has been the regard they give Anne I think they've said famously like they try and it's almost like she was in the room with them and they would always be thinking about, oh, what would she want? What would she decide? You know, so I think that's partly why the show works so well and why a lot of people who were who loved the books were so relieved when it came out. Because, yes, there are changes, uh, but they're all very much in service to the themes and the ideas in Anne's work. And that is due to the respect that they gave the original work and the authorial intent behind those books. So it would be really interesting for me to be able to ask Roland Jones that question. 
a question, which would be how far along in the process of all of this, like what's the timeline when Anne passed away and how much input did she have? How much did she know? Because I'm going to assume I know nothing about television production or storytelling on a television show, but I would, I would assume to some degree they, they know where these characters are going and what they're going to do with them multiple seasons ahead of, you know, kind of where they are so they can lay groundwork for future things to happen, especially in an adaptation show like this. But I, I wonder how much she knew in terms of things they omitted from the book, things they, they changed from the book, things like that, um, stuff that was, you know, kind of true to the story. She must have been okay with certain things. I mean, the, the biggest, most glaring, obvious change is um, not only Louis being open um, somewhat, you know, as time went on, um, about his sexuality and who he is versus in the book, like you said, Christina, it went from being subtext to being text. She had to have known that much. And also she had to have known the change of the timeline in order to make Louis and Claudia uh, black. They needed to be able to take them out of that time era of slavery and bring them into something where it made more sense. And she had to have at least known that, I would assume. So I think it would be awesome to hear from him or somebody on the show that, you know, has knowledge of where they were at in production and timeline and because they were already filming right yeah I believe she was ill though for quite a long time because she had a series of strokes so I don't know how compassmentous she was for even the beginning process Um, I'm not sure what's interesting to me is that it illustrates we know I know I know people who are and I and I've read people who are very uh, who share this opinion that they don't like the series because it strays in their mind too far from the book and too far from Anne's intentions. In fact, I've I've re- I've heard people talking about it and ter- that it's just not gothic enough. That they've they've turned it into something that it 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 wasn't in the book and that they enjoyed about the book. He punched through a guy's head in a church, killed two priests, and then like proposed to Louis in front of an altar strewn with blood. How gothic do you want? I know, I know. I don't know, maybe I, a bit more lace around the collar. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so if if Anne Rice said to those people, the people that don't like that because they think it, it wasn't her intent, if she cleared that matter up and said, no, it was my intent, would they then like the show or would they like Anne's work less because it's not what they, like, I, I just I'm curious how much weight it would have. Does that make sense? That's such a good point, Joanne. And it it actually reminds me of a quote that um, Anne wrote. I think it was I think it was one of the early books. Um, but that idea of if if you're asking, you might not like the answer. And also people putting their own interpretation onto things. And actually, maybe that is the most valuable thing. Uh, so, oh, it's from the Vampire Stat. This quote. So uh, the quote is. Very few beings really seek knowledge in this world. Mortal or immortal, few really ask. On the contrary, they try to wring from the unknown the answers they have already shaped in their own minds. Justifications, confirmations, forms of consolation without which they can't go on. To really ask is to open the door to the whirlwind. The answer may annihilate the question and the questioner. There you go. Do you think... That among the people who think that the show has strayed too far from Anne Rice's vision, 
and books, that's maybe a bad thing, includes Christopher Rice. We can't possibly tell because I think he's got an NDA. After what happened with the film, with Anne writing that long thing about, you know, Tom Cruise and all of this, I think they just were like, AMC were just like, do you know what? We're not even going <laughs> to. We're not running the risk. Yeah. What happened with the interview with the vampire initially, the film became such a, I mean, and hey, look, I'm still in Anne's original camp of he was, he's not her Lestat. Eventually she liked him. So she said, and I don't know if I believe her, but. I think that was a, <laughs> I think that was a political and possibly business decision. But I mean, there. many, many, many people do like it. Here's the interesting thing about what Joanna was talking about there. And, and this idea that people ultimately, mm-hmm. the author is going to write what the author is going to write. The biggest thing about it is the the reader's perception and how they in how or reader or whatever viewer the however you in whatever media it is your response your perception of that media because your perception is your reality but what i find particularly interesting is that people who might joanne to your point say well that this isn't good because that can't possibly be what she meant because obviously what she meant is this is xyz well it's just your opinion, man. Yeah. You know, you don't know that that's necessarily what her intent was. That's your perception of what her intent was is however you're you're taking it in. So a lot of times what I will see are fans saying, oh, that's so whatever coded, whatever it is. Um, uh, a lot of times early, early, early on, I saw a lot of talk around, oh, it's. I, I can't remember if it was Louis. I think it was Louis that they were saying is so uh, neurodiverse, yeah. t- coded, right? And that may be the case. It may it may not necessarily be my. I'm, this is a bad example because I do ag- agree with that. But but it it could be that it's not the case that that isn't coded that way. You're only seeing it coded that way because. That's the way you experience it. Somebody else might see it in a, in a totally different, through a totally different lens. And that is the beauty <clears throat> and also sometimes the absolute frustration of dealing with media in online spaces because a person could get really wedded to what their perception is and think that that is the only right perception. And I see a lot of that in this fandom. Yes, and therefore the only way to read it and or experience it, view it, and if you don't experience it in the same way, then you are wrong, and then that can cause a lot of friction, uh, and it does cause people, I mean, I I think that that's why groups break down into like-minded, I hate the word, it's because it's not necessarily applicable here, but cliques, people where you find that there's like-minded people and they they think about the show maybe not in exactly the same way but in basically the same way they might have different headcanon here and there but they think about it in the in in basically the same way it's interesting this idea about authorial control over the content and maybe even authors making value judgments about their work and how to consume it i'm reminded of the line louis says in the show to daniel you were not worthy of my story then <laughs> It's very, um, and then of course Daniel quips back, "Well, maybe your story wasn't worth telling." Right, and and honestly, if you think about Louis, um, the point of this interview, all of this, 
all of this gets down to what what is the story that they're trying to tell? And this is a big question for us as viewers. What is this interview about? And why is he telling it? Right. Louis says truth and reconciliation. But what but we all kind of go, okay, that's what you're saying, but what do you really mean? What is it right. what's the underlying real truth to this? Because I think everybody, even people who haven't read the books, are looking at this story and they have to come away with and I think that it I think that the storytellers, the writers have done a good enough job of creating this tension. You have to come away with an idea of mm, everything here isn't as it seems. And there is maybe a truth, but the truth is not what's being necessarily presented here, or at least not the whole truth. Again, playing with perception, Joe. You know, the more I think about it, the more I think that the death of the author is pretty much a central point of the show, not only not only about Anne Rice, but also it's yes, literally, but also this idea of the death of the author, Louis the author, he got turned into a vampire, that's his death. So he, he dies in order to tell his story. But then also you have the disintegration of his narrative and of his memories. And that allows for such fantastic play on perspective, uh, you know, and this idea that even the story he's telling might end up not being <laughs> the story in the end. So you have the death of, of the author in that sense as well. And then you have Daniel, who's an author, who is also dying. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very rich, because there's authorial intent in the, I guess, meta sense of there's Anne, the original author and her intent. Then there's the adapter's intent. Then there's the way that the viewers are perceiving the intent. But then there's also baked in, as you said, in the show, there's authorship. There's, a, a, you know, a body of work that Daniel has created as an author. And this, the stories that he's putting out there, well, what's really Daniel's story, right? Like, there's just so much, there's so many layers to it. I've got five of his books here and what they're about. These are, these are Daniel Malloy's books on his bookshelf, authored by him. So you've got Hate and Ashbury, which was about the hate. The Internet's Gavel, which is about the unregulated internet. Um, A Shadow on the Skin, which is about the AIDS ec epidemic. And Under the Burning Sky, which is about the environment and acid rain. So, yeah, very, I mean, you're asking what's Daniel's story at? Maybe those books are a glimpse into it. I would love to read Hayden Ashbury Hayden, because you know uh -huh. shit went down there oh, that you, we have not remembered yet. And yeah. That we don't know. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't know. And I wonder, you know, what'll be interesting is to see what gets fleshed out in season two about precisely that San Francisco and his encounter with Louis. Once you're looking for ideas of authorship and books in the show, oh my goodness, there is a treasure trove. So you've got the books in Daniel's apartment. Um, when you when you get your first glimpse of him on the sofa, there are books behind him, and the readable titles are Advice and Descent and The Savage Garden. Those are the two books behind him on the sofa. Uh, and then, of course, there's books in piles around Daniel's apartment as well. Then you've got the books on his bookshelf with the titles that he wrote himself. Uh, your story was not worth my story. Sorry, you are not worthy of my story then. Um, and then when you first see Lestat from behind, you don't even see his face, but you do see he's holding a book, the blue book, which you guys already discussed in one of your episodes. And then, of course, you cut to Paul and his Bible. And Louis picks up the Bible and throws it at Paul. 
And then there's a huge, a huge amount of newspapers in the show and park benches. Um, just so many. <laughs> uh, and then somebody said recently, I think it was in one of the, um, on YouTube, one of the watch, what do they call it? Watch alongs, watch throughs. Um, somebody was talking about newspapers piling up in the apartment during the depression years. And it's an interesting way of showing that time is passing because, you know, of course, newspapers are very much cemented in time and dates. Um, but then Louis quoting Daniel's book, Hayton Asprey, back to him in episode three, when Daniel confronts him about his inconsistency. Then you've also got, maybe it's a weak tenebrous link, but Louis brings his niece's paper dolls made out of paper. Um, in episode four, of course, you've got Claudia's diaries throughout the entire episode, which, you know, are books. Uh, who cut out the pages, of course? There's another question we can talk about at some point. Um, and then, of course, the floating bookshelves, uh, which probably do lower at the push of a button, <laughs> like the amount of like minds that are going to explode when that happens in season two. Um, why does she talk to the book? The book is my friend. The book is a book, <laughs> of course. Um, possible link to Gabrielle there, you know, her love of books. Um, and then I had kind of a thought, like I just started, I was kind of making notes about all these and I just like, oh my God, Claudia becomes the book. The diaries are the only testimony left from her. So she's she's been reduced to just her words, just the book. Um, and of course, when she goes off, um, she's when she leaves to go to university, she's found in a library. Um, when Louis is depressed in episode five, he's reading a book, piles of books and newspapers, of course, around the flat. Um, and then, of course, there's the conflict about the torn pages in Claudia's diary. And this is what Daniel says. When you do that, Louis, when you edi editorialize, however noble the reason, it calls into question all the other shit you're shoveling my way. So, again, a little bit about you can't tailor what's there. But however much he, Louis wants, has an intention for it to be a certain way. It's like, like you said, the play's the thing. The truth will out. Exactly. <laughs> it's interesting that you're you're saying that and and about Claudia's diaries being edited be, and well Claudia be Claudia becoming a book, but that book is all is edited. And then you know also you, one would assume that your diary is for your own private you know consumption and your own personal interest, but. At a certain point in the series, we know that Claudia gets wise to the fact that her father's read her diary. And then what happens? Then do you then do you trust your diary to always be private? Can you ever trust that it is just going to be between you and yourself? And then who are you writing for? Are you writing for yourself anymore? Or are you writing for an audience? Right, exactly. And then and then does your authorial intent change when you become aware of your audience? If you are, you know, if you are writing in service to an audience, in this case, if if, if Claudia now is crafting her diary, her journals in a way that she knows, well, people are going to read this. So I'm going to say certain things or she might not have been less guarded or say it a certain way or her intention is to communicate a certain something, right? Or just a shit all over her, her, her dad. dad. Yeah. <laughs> but that also circles back. It could be applicable to Louis and the interview. Like, why is he giving this interview? Who is he giving it for? 
who is he telling this story for? Is he doing it for himself? Is he doing it for the world? Is he doing it as a provocation? Is he doing it for Daniel? Yeah. Well, and did you eat the baby? <laughs> see, the, the, see, was it, it raining? It, so was it raining? Was it raining? <laughs> Daniel, as an excellent interviewer, and he clearly is, he knows that Louis is being, you know, when you're first sitting down to interview yeah, someone, to they're, being, the they're being got, he, he's, he's, he's being guarded. He knows they talk about how, uh, well, this isn't in the agreement that I saw I, that was at the airport. Um, uh, Armand and well, when he's Rashid says that, and Daniel says, you know, this is not, I don't work like this. I work best one-on-one and he wants Rashid out of there. He understands that this is, this is an environment that is being, extremely controlled and we see it we see that literally armand is controlling the environment and and dan daniel keeps pushing because he has the thermostat controls (laughs) yeah it's absolutely fascinating that you said that about claudia and yes she's become a book but she's not even allowed to tell her full story without being editorialized by both louis and armand one ripped one cut out with a ruler but it reminded me of george sand who wrote we cannot tear out a single page of our life but we can throw the whole book on the fire interesting link also to louis torching the tapes but there's that's the idea of like editorializing especially it's almost it's almost worse doing it to someone else you know deciding for them what gets to be said or not and of course i understand louis's motivation and how deeply he's hurt about it and i guess maybe even ashamed but Absolutely fascinating. I, th- I think Anne Rice would have been definitely on the side of no one should ever edit me ever. <laughs> she made sure of it. <laughs> a quick question for Joni. As our sort of clean slate, right, unburdened by the 35 books that both Christina and Joe have read. Mm-hmm. They're not 35, but okay. Approximately. At the end of this adventure, right, the end of this show, do you think we will get... Daniel as the final arbiter of truth and we'll get the real story? Or do you think the show is going to leave it all these, you know, was it raining? Did you, all the, all the unanswered questions kind of just hanging there. uh, And, you know, it's up to you to figure out which thing you believe. Yeah. I'm going to go with more of the choose your own adventure type thing. I don't think we're going to get, we're going to get some answers to some questions throughout the whole series, but overall, I think, I don't know if we're ever going to know why. I don't know if we're ever going to get a clear cut, concise answer where people aren't going to go, well, they say that, but what they really meant was this. I I don't think Daniel can be an arbiter of truth because it's been revealed in the show that he himself is an unreliable narrator. He doesn't remember his own story. Well, but yet. Oh, but yet. And and that's interesting, though, because, uh, ah, I just had a thought. (laughs) Oh, no. Here we go. Uh, Everyone, hang on. It's it's. It's goddamn David again. <laughs> oh my god, I'm going down a rabbit hole. No, but we were talking about Claudia being edited, right? By Louis in in the tearing out pages. I assume you're on board with me on this. Louis tore the pages out and Armand inside like cut the pages out. Armand has the exacto knife. Yes. Daniel is also edited potentially by Armand. Right, because wipes his memory or whatever. Maybe. Yeah. Yes. And and potentially it was at his own request. And that would be critical. If Daniel asks him to do it, that's that says one thing. If Armand just does it, that means Armand, I, more and more I, I worry, 
slightly because Armand is is my little pet. I worry that they might paint him just as the villain, like full stop, this is the bad guy and everybody has to line up against the bad guy. I hope that they don't do that. I hope that they allow for his complexity to continue. But if it is revealed that he is really the mastermind trying to control everything about this narrative, that makes him, again, more like slightly less um, I don't want to say sympathetic because he doesn't need sympathy. I agree. Do you, do you know what I mean? Uh, slightly less uh, um, um, appealing as a character or uh, I don't know. Again, it, I, I shouldn't say sympathy because it's not what I mean. But I can't think of what I mean right now. I'm just I'm, I'm caught up in the excitement of my idea yes. that Armand is the right, master well, editor of so, everything. Sort it out for us. Yeah, go ahead, Joni. I have a question. Do you guys think a book because they did this interview once before he never wrote the book. He said, you know, who would take him seriously? Do you think at the end of all of this, an actual book will be written? Because it wasn't before. It, it, it again begs the question of intentionality. What is Louis's intention? Is he intending to actually write a book? If so, why? Or is he intending to somehow provoke other vampires by giving this interview? I mean, Armand says you are chronicling a suicide. So why is Louis giving the interview? Well, Louis says it's because and, and and they may abandon this altogether and just say, oh, it was just something Louis was saying. But Louis, that Louis. <laughs> Louis says it's to do with, you know, sort of the great conversion. Right. And that with our book, we've got to alert people. People need to become aware of this. So then does that make Louis the great hero of the piece because he is trying to save humanity, because he is the vampire that is still most attached to his his humanity, or is that just going to be dropped and we're not going to ever find out about what the goddamn farm is? I need to know. So, well, I think that about wraps it up for this episode. We so very much appreciated your time, Joe. Thank you so much for coming to um, share your thoughts with us on authorial intent. And we are definitely going to have you back on the show in the future. Um, so everybody, look forward to that. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Joe, do you have any social media that you would like to share with our listeners that, where they can find you and interact if they would like to? I am Inky Block Posts on Twitter and Tumblr. Um, I'd love to hear if anyone wants to message me. I love having chats about the show. Um, and thank you so much, guys, for having me on here. It's been really fun talking to you all. You were a delight. Absolutely. Okay, so Joanne, would you like to take us out? Thank you guys for listening to our episode on authorial intent. And a very special thank you to our special guest, Joe, who you could find on Twitter and Tumblr at Inky Block Posts. You can follow Mark and Christina as well on Twitter. It's Mark Eats Peach. And Christina is at Christina Gen X as well as our official Twitter account. Thank you all so much. Have a great night. Good night, Mark, and good night, Christina. Good night. Peace out, Cub Scouts.